Welcome to It Just So Happens. Yes, this is the alternative history show recorded for the It Just So Happens podcast. I am Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, with the help of my guest panel, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history. So today, that's the 17th of July. Then we'll delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place, which is, well, sense of deja vu here. We've been here twice before, once in person in 2019, and once in spirit with an online show in 2020. It's the place made famous by Springwater, not that place beginning with B, A-T-H, uh, but the other one, yes, it's Buxton. Uh, applauding yourselves now, very good. So it's approximately 1,000 feet above sea level. Buxton can also lay claim to be the highest market town in England. We're performing today as part of the 2021 Buxton Fringe Festival with its striking orange livery, whereas our venue today is the Green Man Gallery. So to those with Christian religious sensitivity, we're doing our best to appeal to both Protestants and Catholics <laughs> in the middle of the marching season. So without further ado, let's march on and I'll introduce the panel for tonight's show. Please welcome Kevin Hudson. Kevin Hudson. Kevin is a poet, comedian, and accountant. Kevin grew up in Birmingham but lives in Leicester. He's been performing stand-up comedy and poetry since 2016, in which time he's been a silver stand-up finalist at the Leicester Comedy Festival five times. Never mm -hmm. always. <laughs> now he tells me he was once offered a job by Jeremy Kyle, so there's, there's not time to find out about this, I'll have to ask you about that later. But he's also met footballer Yuri Tielemans in Morrison's, presumably, <laughs> presumably for tea and scones, special offer three ninety nine for two. Isn't it? <laughs> so, so over to you, Kevin. Right, thank you. Um, well, without further ado, yeah, I'm described by the Leicester Mercury as uh, Leicester's favourite poet, comedian, accountant. <laughs> <laughs> Genuine quote. Anyway, uh, 104 years ago today. King George V decided to change the name of the British royal family to Windsor. Now, prior to this, the royal family didn't really, really have a name as such. They were just known by the house to which they belonged. So I guess, you know, I'd be sort of Kevin of West Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but it changed, you know, usually through battle. So when, when Henry VII beat Richard III at, um, at Bosworth, they were from Plantagenets to Tudors and so on. And that, that was kind of well, anyway, 104 years ago, prior to the 17th of July, um, the royals belonged to the house of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. They'd been part of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha since uh, Queen Victoria married Prince Albert uh, in 1840. Uh, a little bit of trivia for you. Um, Victoria and Albert's wedding cake was actually taller than Queen Victoria. <laughs> it was five foot two. <laughs> Had a circumference of three yards, which was significantly greater than that of Queen Victoria. Uh, well, there's no harm in calling yourself Saxe Coburg Gotha, I, I think you might think. Uh, call yourself what you like, you're the royal family, aren't you? But this was 104 years ago. 
It was 1917. Couldn't I fly? <laughs> it was in the middle of World War I. It wasn't called that at the time. <laughs> I can't help feeling that George V had left it a bit late. The war had been on since 1914. It probably thought, well, just wait and see how this works out. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep our options open for a bit. It's a bit like when you're at school and kids would wait to see who won the league before they decided who they were going to support. (laughs) Or when you were playing football at lunchtime, you made sure you were on Greg Atkins' side. Because then you'd be certain to work. You probably don't know who Greg Atkins is, do you? I was at school with Greg Atkins, and, and you would have been at school with a Greg Atkins or female equivalent. Greg was, Greg was a lad who was brilliant at English, maths, languages, football, absolutely everything. He was like a cross between David Watts and my perfect cousin. <laughs> so when we lined up at football, lined up at uh, lunchtime for football, Greg was always picked first, and I'm usually picked last. Well, I say picked last. I mean, you don't get picked if you're last, do you? <laughs> you just you just what's left after all the others have gone. Like Prince Edward. <laughs> <laughs> so, George V. He may have thought, well if Britain lose, we can just say, it's okay chaps. We're German. Wir sind Deutsch. Um, we've always been German. So um, you just keep the palace, it'll be alright. Okay, Willendank. Earlier this year, documents were released revealing a conversation between George V and the then Prime Minister, David Lloyd George. And it just so happens, she's name on the show, uh, I have a transcript here. How are we doing in the war, Mr Lloyd George? I should point out, by the way, that uh, you probably know David Lloyd George is Welsh. Um, or was Welsh. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not going to do the accent. I'll be accused of racism. Good friend who is Welsh, you would take no exception to that. So, how are we doing in the war, Mr. Lloyd George? What do you mean, we, Your Majesty? <laughs> we are doing very well. Your lot, on the other hand. What do you mean, my lot? Well, not to put too fine a point on it, your Saxe Coburg Gotha lot. Uh, I see what you mean. You think anyone else has noticed? <laughs> what? You're German? <laughs> and there's actually a German bomber called a gopher. That's true. I'm obviously all of it's true. But, but that particular bit, the bit about the German bomber called a gopher, there was a German bomber called a gopher. And its, it's maiden flight was in 1917. So you can't help but imagine that the Germans naming a bomber after the British royal family that they were actually bombing, it's just them having a bit of a laugh, like they do. <laughs> At this point, of course, I've mentioned German aeroplanes. I'm going to steer away from any crude jokes along that um, along that bill. Well, what do you advise, what do you advise, Mr. Lloyd George? David, Dave. <laughs> should I do? Well, if I were you, he said in Welsh. I'll change my name to something nice and traditionally British. That should do the job. Would that work? Just changing my name to something less German and not the same as one of the planes that's bombing us? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are there people that 
gullible. Oh, trust me. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. What about naming oneself after a castle? I should point out, by the way, I'm from Birmingham, I say castle, but active. <laughs> what about naming oneself after a castle? People like castles. Yes, Your Majesty, that would probably work. Well, that's settled then. From now on, we will no longer be called Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Henceforth, I shall be known as George Bouncy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a different type of castle, Your Highness. <laughs> Windsor? Yep. And that's what happened. Okay, that's, well, roughly. <laughs> Something like that. Um, and I don't know about Buxton, I'm not looking from around these parts, but certainly in Leicester, um, a lot of the street names change their names when the, when the royal family changed their names. So in Leicester, we've got a street called Gotham Street, uh, and that was previously Gopher Street. We've got a street called Saxby Street, and that was previously Saxe-Polberg Street. And we've got a street called Charles Street, which was Kaiser Wilhelmstrasse. <laughs> <laughs> so it's mostly true. Um, our, our, our Queen, Queen Elizabeth uh, II, just to remind you, Queen Elizabeth II, um, actually did consider changing it back from Windsor to saxe coburg Gotha in 1970, following England's disastrous 3-2 defeat to West Germany <laughs> in the Mexico World Cup final. Finally, uh, if you're thinking of catching a taxi home after this, I just remember the German national anthem, Deutschland über alles, uh, which translates as the Germans have booked all the Ubers. <laughs> so thank you, that's all from me. So a question to the panel, which famous musical composition was premiered on this day in 1717 on the River Thames? Here's a clue. Uh, and of water music? Mm -hmm. oh, mm -hmm. It's going to be, be glass. Philip <laughs> uh, <laughs> Glass. Yeah. My second question was who composed it, but you've already said Handel's water music, so there you go. So, but for whom was the music performed? What year? 1717. 17. George the Something. Yeah, George the Third. First. No, yeah. the first. George the First, very good, yes. So it was performed for George the First of Great Britain and invited guests. The king and his guests left at about 8pm on that day, sailing on one barge, while an orchestra of 50 musicians sailed on another, with the 32-year-old Handel himself conducting. The rising tide took them upriver towards Chelsea for about three and a half miles, without the need for any rowing. And many other Londoners also took to the river in boats and barges to listen to the concert. Handel had packed the orchestra with raucous horns and woodwind instruments, to, so the sound would carry across the water. The king disembarked at Chelsea, then returned at about 11 o'clock for the return trip. And the king was so pleased with the water music that he ordered it to be repeated at least three times during the whole evening. So until well after midnight, with only one break for the poor musicians while the king was ashore. Now, why did Handel compose the water music, do you think? Why, why, why did musicians... Make it rain? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's like a, that's like an early version of a Walkman, isn't it? It's sort of taking the music with you. It's a little bit elaborate. Yeah. Sounds like it's a, a, appropriate for the 18th century. 
Well, legend has it that he wanted to regain the favour of King George I, who had previously sacked him. So why do you think he might have been sacked by George? Um, by George. <laughs> by George. Why was he sacked by George? By George. That's where the phrase came from. Yeah. <laughs> I don't expect you to know the answer. I mean, back in 1710, the king was then elector of Hanover, and he'd employed the young Handel as a court conductor. But after his operas were ecstatically received in London, the composer sensed an opportunity to get more exposure and travel to Britain. And despite promising to return within a reasonable time, he never actually did, so was sacked. But in 1714, George arrived in London himself to take the English throne, so mm, awkward. Well, the water music was therefore probably a peace offering, a means for boosting George's profile and impressing Londoners. In the first years of his reign, George I was, German speaking, uncharismatic and not especially intelligent. He was unpopular, and opposition politicians supported his eldest son, the future George II, who pointedly refused to attend the concert. Of course, this was the later inspiration for Elvis Costello's song, I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea. <laughs> uh, to this day, no one knows exactly how it should be performed. The original score has not survived. The piece is usually split into three separate suites, made of 22 self-contained movements, but no one is quite sure how they actually fit together, and in what order the movements come, or even whether water music was actually performed in its entirety, or created for different occasions. Another mystery is how Handel squeezed a harpsichord and kettle drums into a barge. <laughs> Most probably he didn't take that risk. Handel composed the music for the Royal Fireworks 32 years later for another outdoor performance, this time for George II, for the fireworks in London's Green Park in 1749. He then considered performing both pieces simultaneously, calling it Smoke on the Water. <laughs> Not Earth, Wind and Fire. <laughs> Handel famously had a foul temper. He once threatened to dangle a soprano out of the window if she didn't do exactly as he said. <laughs> soprano there in the audience. <laughs> and he's also reported to have said that most of the music at the Royal Court was composed and performed by blockheads, which predated the injury. Joining the band by only a couple of centuries. So, it's yeah. ahead of his. so our second guest is Ishi Khan. Ishi Khan or Ishi Khan Jackson? I'm looking at your post there. Is Ishi Khan? Ishi Khan. Okay. Yeah. I'm going by your Twitter handle, you see. So. Oh, that's okay. um, so Ishi, I believe, is a writer and performer, stand up comedian for well over a decade, from what I've read online, mm -hmm. and currently living in Leicestershire. She's produced and toured several solo shows, often on themes of unity, freedom, and equality and has been a Funny Women's Best Show Awards nominee. She's performed comedy to 800 people on board a Red Sea cruise liner, but her first, first solo performance was just after starting primary school in Zambia, singing to a school assembly of 1,800 pupils and teachers. Her song was in Hindi and caused hilarity amongst her Zambian audience, giving her perhaps a, an early foretaste of the comedy that you <laughs> was to come. So, over to you, Ishi. I don't think so. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yes, it was, um, Hindi is not the national language of Zambia. <laughs> <laughs> and I was uh, terribly out of tune. <laughs> so um, I continued, of course, and the more they laughed, the more I carried on. <laughs> so here we are. Um, so on this day in uh, 1975, uh, the first ever friendly handshake took place between America and Russia. 
They had to be sent to space to do it. <laughs> mm. We had the Apollo spacecraft, which was the American spacecraft. Apollo, of course, named after the great god of mint sweets. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and the Russian aircraft, which is uh, the Soyuz, Soyuz um, aircraft, which is named, of course, after the great god of tofu. <laughs> <laughs> And as these spacecraft got together and docked in space, like so, they, uh, the hatches connected and the doors were knocked upon by the astronauts. And I thought that's a long way to go for a long, a knock-knock joke. <laughs> <laughs> these hatches opened and they finally got to shake hands astronauts from America and from Russia, which was uh, mind-blowing and the first time ever in space that this could happen. Of course, at the time, there was a massive Cold War going on between the US and the USSR, where they were arguing about things like, hey, why have you got our name? You copied our name, give it back. <laughs> US, that's our name, you need to give it back. But we share everything. <laughs> we are the USSR. It's different. You mean uh, you remixed it? <laughs> uh, what does USSR even stand for? Well, USSR is about union. It's about bringing people together. We share everything. We don't possess anything, unless you're the government. <laughs> So, yes, USSR stands for union. Union is about coming together. What does the United States even do? Oh, well, united is, you know, we unite 50 states. That's what we're about. In fact, we even have us in the US. What does USSR even spell? Us. That just sounds like a snake fart. And so they argued. They argued about uh, their name. They argued about who'd had the most colds in the Cold War. Uh, they argued, like most bickering happens, over a mysterious woman. Now, to this day, we don't know who she is, but the history books tell her tell us that she was named as WMD. <laughs> so yes, the Cold War got rather heated. It has to say, and so they sent them to space to cool off. Go and take some time out. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we continued that and just said, two guys in a bar about to have a fight, get on onto a spacecraft and, and get off into space and cool off. In fact, we could send Boris there. <laughs> we could send Cummings or Hancock. Or actually, the best one yet would be Pretty Patel. <laughs> And then there might be a technical difficulty in getting her back. And when she eventually does return, right? Yeah, exactly. Dreams. <laughs> but when she does eventually return, can you imagine? Excuse me, we have a point system before you <laughs> What exactly are your skill levels? Mm. Oh, you create crises after uh, when there isn't one? No, we don't need that here. <laughs> uh, what's that? You can't pronounce G's. You can't say G. 
Oh, no, we don't need that here. In fact, you've been away from the UK so long that you no longer qualify as a UK resident. <laughs> <laughs> and so she would be left out based on her own rules. So, of course, now we don't have um, a, the, the kind of Cold War that they did have, but we do have the billionaire's space race, individual's space race, right? Each one trying to thrust their rockets further and further. Um, so you've got the likes of Elon Musk, right, with his rocket. <laughs> Absolutely, and for the podcast, I'll describe that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's basically a very pointy top, and uh, it's shiny, and it does have a manga tattoo, which, of course, out of respect for the artists and copyright issues, I could not put there. Um, yeah, so th that's Elon Musk's uh, little uh, rocket, but I think it's, it's more about the girth for him. <laughs> and then we thought, um, oh yes, Elon Musk, of course, he's named after his grandma's perfume, isn't he? <laughs> and our other contender, of course, one of our other contenders, is uh, the wonderful Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, named after an imaginary holiday destination. <laughs> So this is Jeff Bezos's. <laughs> so here we have a very rounded top, um, and actually let's put it let's put it more. Uh, there we go. That's I know it looks it looks similar size, but actually Jeff Bezos I think wins where length is concerned. <laughs> uh, and yes, and and the end has a skylight. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also removed any extra folds, I would say. <laughs> uh, which then begs the question, is Jeff Bezos trying to tell us that he's following in the footsteps of Mark Zuckerberg and uh, about to become Jewish? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, yes, here we've got, yes, I wonder what exactly are they compensating for, these billionaires? with uh, building toys like these, right? So talking about uh, overcompensating billionaires, of course, we have to talk about Bill Gates. Because why else would he name his company Microsoft? <laughs> <laughs> and invest heavily in the makers of Viagra. <laughs> so he's definitely uh, compensating. Now let's move back to Boston in 1975. It was the summer where the cricket was cancelled. Oh, some of you remember that. <laughs> oh, do, do you remember that, sir? Yes, <laughs> nodding over there. Were you in the cricket team? Possibly. <laughs> He's looking at the lady next to him. Yes. <laughs> so yes, it was a time where the cricket was cancelled due to snow. Well, they say snow, but we really know what happened. When the two spacecraft docked, they got rather excited. <laughs> and they spurted this seed of excitement into space. And as this seed swam through space, it cooled down. And by the time it hit Buxton, of course it became snow. <laughs> 
So the docking of the spacecraft was the end of the nuclear arms race, but it gave birth to a whole new race, a race that is non-gender, non-ageist, non-colourful, and it began right here in Buxton. <laughs> <laughs> sitting next to one right now. <laughs> but it's okay, we're all made of star stuff. <laughs> I've been ishy, I'm still ishy. <laughs> Thank you. Also on this day, 17th of July, in 1790, Adam Smith died. So, panel, what was his famous work? Okay. Do you want me to on, uh, on money? He's <laughs> on money. <laughs> it's to do with money, yes. The wealth of nations. Speaks to the accountant there. Wealth of nations. Wealth of nations, indeed, oh. yes. So, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. More commonly you known as the wealth of nations. Yeah. <clears throat> so, it's today seen as a fundamental work in classical economics. It was first published in 1776, but was at least 27 years in the making. And as such, he was an inspiration to students, because while at Oxford between 1740 and 1746, the only writing Smith did was to write letters to his mother. His essays were disappointing, and in 1743 he wrote in one letter, I am just recovered from a violent fit of laziness, which has confined me to my elbow chair these three months. <laughs> Once, while at breakfast, he fell into a discussion with a visitor. He took the piece of toast he'd been gesticulating with and put it in the teapot. He swirled this around and poured himself a cup, and after tasting it, he said, it was the worst cup of tea you'd ever met with. <laughs> while taking a tour of a tanner's yard, where animal skins had turned into leather, he was expostulating on his economic theories and was so taken with his own thoughts, he fell into a pit of foul-smelling chemicals and needed rescuing. Where was he from? Adam Smith. He was, yes. He was, he was from Kikodi in Fife. The town hosts the Adam Smith Theatre, so if you ever want to do a comedy gig in Kikodi, that's where to go. Um, <laughs> it's also the town where Smith died on this day in 1790. And why is there such scant information about his life and work? Difficult questions, he's asking. Yes, He'd requested his executors to burn almost all of his papers, which they did. Right. And so we don't actually have a lot of information about him as a result. Ronald Coase suggests that if Smith's earlier proposal of granting colonies representation in the British Parliament proportional to their contributions to public revenues had been followed, there would have been no 1776, and America would now be ruling England. The Wealth of Nations is the second most cited book in the social sciences published before 1950, behind which other book? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably one for you, because it's Karl Marx's Das Kapital. Oh. Why is that one for me? Anyway, so that leads me on to our third guest okay. here, so Gerard Harris. Gerard describes himself as a mildly acclaimed British-Canadian stand-up and storyteller. But I do know that his show Attention Seeker was in fact an award-winning off-Broadway and World Fringe circuit hit, so I think he's being a bit modest there. I have to change this uh, He's performing two shows in Buxton this year, so first one is Banned in the USA, which I saw um, yesterday in fact, and, and, and 
thoroughly enjoyed. It's an action true tale of fake nations, border security, cyber security, and job insecurity. And uh, the second showing, made it to hold your ears here, is called Wank in Progress, which he says is not for the easily offended. Surprise, surprise. Uh, not even for the medium offended, but everyone else is very welcome. So please do go and see his shows. If you like his stuff, please now check out. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Uh, this is probably more on the wank in progress side of things than the band in the USA, just to warn you. God, there are no children in the room. Um, today is World Day for International Justice, where we recognise the emerging system of international criminal justice and the establishment of the International Criminal Court in The Hague. But who gives a toss about that? Because more importantly, it is World Emoji Day. <laughs> And if you don't get the sarcasm in my voice there, maybe it's because you're waiting for a yellow winky face and side smile to let me know I'm not serious. <laughs> so before we go any further, full disclosure, I didn't choose this topic because I heart emoji. Um, I did it because I angry red face swear words emoji. They make me green and queasy with thermometer in mouth face. <laughs> and I think I want to yellow with, uh, yellow with green vomit pouring out of its mouth face whenever I think about it too much. Created in 2014, according to Wikipedia, World Emoji Day is the brainchild of Jeremy Burge, the head of Emojipedia, the le internet's leading Emojipedia. Um, I think rather closer to the truth is that it's come from the brain of a child named Jeremy Birch, head of Emojipedia, the internet leading Emojipedia. So my first question is, why is there a world emoji day? How is this day different from any other? Uh, why are we supposed to do it? What are we supposed to do on it that we are not already doing every other day? And the answer seems to be it is a day where we are encouraged to use more emojis than normal and corporations use it to promote emoji-related products. Memo to International Justice Day. This is where you're going wrong. Um, <laughs> if you could only release an international criminal justice emoji today, maybe more people would give a fuck. <laughs> so I checked the news. I did. And the most interesting of all the pointless emoji-related events happening today is that Apple have released 70 new emoji, including peacocks, lobsters, kangaroos, mangoes, and cupcakes. Yes, I know what you're all thinking. How did we all get through life without a peacock emoji? No mention of peahen, by the way. Blatant gender bias, as usual. Also, they have released, quote, more expressive faces, such as a cold face and a pleading face. <laughs> Not making this up. The pleading face, of course, will come in handy with Apple users when they're being harassed by the authorities in China, Saudi Arabia, Belarus, Colombia, Egypt, Kazakhstan, South Africa, Turkmenistan, Uganda, and the Philippines all the countries in which Apple have agreed not to include their privacy tools and anti-surveillance options in exchange for access to those markets, while the cold face is handy for the authorities to use in reply while they torture the shit out of the pleading faces who stupidly expected more from the world's most profitable corporation in history. Speak that just for me. 
speaking of authoritarianism masquerading as democracy, all emojis are assessed and approved by the Unicode Consortium, which sounds like a benign, sinister group of California-based technologists in a dystopian science fiction novel, but it's actually a benign, sinister group of California-based <laughs> technologists in a dystopian science fact reality. This one. It comprises a 15-member panel, mainly of Silicon Valley tech giants, who we all know, plus the Bangladesh, uh, the Bangladesh Co uh, Computer Council, the Amani Ministry of Endowments and Religious Affairs, the Tamil Virtual Academy, the University of California, Berkeley, at Berkeley, I beg your pardon, and the o and OMG face uh, that looks a bit like Moops the Scream, Emojipedia itself, conflict of interest, I think. Uh, to be fair, they're a non-profit, they actually were set up 30 years ago to coordinate and maintain standardization of text in every language on every platform in the world, not an easy job, uh, and have now found themselves faced with being the global emoji authority. While there's been plenty of criticism in the past about inclusivity, it does seem like they're responding and have been doing their best to be representative to everybody seeking inclusion, which is very important on this dying planet. Uh, it's democratic in the sense that anyone can submit an application for a new emoji, and the Unicode Consortium will at least consider it. So I would like to submit a couple of proposals, <laughs> which I can run past you first, with your blessing. Thank you for that, I'm still doing it. Uh, number one is I'd like an emoji of a dying planet, uh, because it would be so useful from now on every time I get a text from anyone about absolutely anything that isn't important, and I don't want to engage with the kitchen's dirty, you need to borrow money, you split up with your boyfriend, you're not rich and famous yet. Here, have a dying planet and a tiny violin. Uh, and number two is the crying with laughter face inside a red circle with a diagonal line going through it, which means stop fucking using emoji. <laughs> you need to know uh, what I mean. Why do I hate emoji? Well, thanks for asking. Um, after all, they have been a contextual godsend to people who don't want to make the effort to learn how to express themselves clearly through written language alone. Um, it's a little known fact, but we already have words for things. <laughs> Did you know that? Um, for example, you want to express your amusement at something funny your friend texted you. Did you know that ha-ha does that? <laughs> or ha-ha-ha if it's really funny, or just ha if it's not funny at all but your friend is expecting a reaction and you don't <laughs> I was already, true story, I was already very upset 20 years ago when people started writing LOL. Um, well, things have evolved so much that nobody writes LOL anymore. Instead, my millennial stepdaughter and her friends say LOL out loud instead of laughing. <laughs> LOL. If we follow this development further, I suspect someday when emoji are replaced by the next infantilizing empty pseudo-language, uh, we will all find ourselves doing emoji with our faces in real-life conversation. <laughs> oh no, wait, we already do. They're called facial expressions. <laughs> Still, I fully expect in the future I will have to bring a flamenco dancer, a fresh aubergine and a lump of smiling poo with me everywhere. Um, not that I don't. Incidentally, why is the poo always happy? <laughs> I think we should be concerned that there's too much pressure on poos these days, especially young poos. Uh, always have to be smiling. Doesn't poo have a right to express its full range of emotions? 
Um, you'd think it would be sad what was being freshly laid and then immediately abandoned by its mother, often buried or drowned at birth. Um, <laughs> either way, left to fend for itself with no parental care or behaviour to mimic, its only hope of moving up in the world is getting stuck to a shoe or maybe <laughs> getting a thousand flies to fuck on it. Still, the poo lobby is strong. It's 2021 and I still don't see any emoji for piss on the horizon. So come on, piss fans, get that proposal together. Why, if you really want to get support, you could live stream it. <laughs> Just for you. Right. As for the aubergine, I've, I was listening to an interview with a guy in San Francisco talking about using emoji on Grindr. If you don't know what Grindr is, um, well, go ahead and Google. Um, quote, emojis tell us what we are and what we're, uh, it's, it's the gay hookup, um, like Tinder, but exclusively or specifically for homosexuals. Uh, quote, emojis tell us what we are and what we're saying so we don't have to talk to each other. Who says romance is dead? <laughs> okay, so say what you want, like having an aubergine in your, you like having an aubergine in your peach and you're looking for somebody who likes to put their aubergine in a peach. Good for you. Um, could you not just say you like getting bumped in the arm? Uh, and you're looking for somebody else who wants to do that. Uh, why flamenco dance around the issue? At least this way you'll know for sure what you're getting, because the last thing anybody wants is to end up on a date with an opinionated foodie. Um, <laughs> or an experimental chef. Um, if you don't agree, you can go stick your aubergine up your own peach. And if you don't have an aubergine to do that with, just go and grind her and borrow someone else's. <laughs> Speaking of which, how am I supposed to offer people moussaka now? <laughs> do I have to put an aubergine followed by a custard emoji and a Greek flag? <laughs> On second thoughts, that might actually be even dirtier. Um, last time I checked, the flag alone is pretty synonymous with getting fucked in the arse. Um, especially by Germany. Uh, um, that's the economic joke, I guess. And what if I want to invite somebody round for a nice peach cobbler? Um, do I have to put a peach followed by a shoe and then a hammer? That's a cobbler, right, I guess. Um, will my guests show up hungry for dessert or hungry for a very heavy spanking session? So, I shall be also, I shall also be submitting a petition to the Unico Consortium for a cock and arse emoji. Um, and while we're at it, a vagina and a cunt emoji too. That's right, vagina and cunt. The reason is simple. The vagina emoji will be a carefully crafted soft pink vulva shape with a dark curly hair dotted around it. While the cunt emoji will be a white puffy round face with unkempt straggly blonde hair on top. <laughs> a collar that's too tight around the bottom and an endless stream of blue coloured bullshit pouring out of its mouth. <laughs> yes, lying, blustering, incompetent, corrupt scumbags are people too and they absolutely deserve their own emoji. Speaking of inclusivity, while researching this topic, I listened to a podcast on emoji used by and for the visually impaired. And one woman made a really interesting point. She said saying, she was saying that actually she doesn't want a special emoji of her own because she doesn't want her disability to define her, which I greatly support. Uh, and that she preferred it when emoji were representative of everybody, you know? Um, uh, not, sorry, not when they were representative of everybody individually, but when they could represent us collectively. And I wish she'd have ended her point there. But she finished uh, this way. Quote, I liked it more when they were all just yellow, because nobody's a little yellow person, really. <laughs> and I swear I could 
hear the presenter thinking how to react in a way that didn't upset the interviewee, who is blind after all, nor roughly one-fifth of the world's population <laughs> could technically be described this way. So, as for World Emoji Day, yes, that's what we're talking about, um, I think I could get behind this more if we could, in the interest of parity, also have a World No Emoji Day and see which day feels more liberating. Um, even better, let's have 364 days of World No Emoji Day, and then every year on July 17th, everybody go crying, laughing, face flamenco dancing, aubergine peach fucking happy poo eating crazy. <laughs> the show where we uncover some alternative histories of Buxton. The origins of the town's name are uncertain. It may be derived from the Old English for Buckstone or for Rocking Stone. When the Romans first developed a settlement in the area, they called it Aquae Armimetii, which roughly translates as place of bottled spring water, filtered <laughs> through limestone for 5,000 years, best before end 2022. <laughs> The pale blue spring water which bubbles up from the thermal springs beneath what is now the Crescent are the outlets from a subterranean reservoir whose waters originated from rainfall at the end of the last ice age or about 5,000 years ago. This makes Buxton's water older than the earliest known Sumerian and Egyptian writing and contemporaneous with both the settlement of Scala Bray on Orkney and the birth of Keith Richards. <laughs> <laughs> There used to be a chapel where the water emerges from what is now known as St Anne's Well. Here visitors and pilgrims would go to pray, give thanks and hang the crutches they no longer needed. But in 1538 all the relics and crutches were removed, the chapel locked and the wells and baths sealed under the wealth grab of Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell, referred to as a dissolution. <laughs> In 1780, the 5th Duke of Devonshire and Chatsworth House decided to use the profits from his copper mines to develop Buxton as a spa in the style of <coughs> bath. He had the present designs and had to build on his own land, right at the thermal spring site, culvert the river Wye, fell a grove of trees and moved the actual well. And so Buxton grew in fame as a spa town because of the thermal springs. So, question for the panel, what's the temperature of the water as it reaches the surface, do you think? It depends on the day, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah it comes out of the ground. Okay. Because 40, 40 degrees, maybe? 4 zero? Yeah. Okay, there we go. It's a bit warm. Are we talking Fahrenheit or centigrade? It is quite warm. It is quite warm, I'll tell you. Yeah. 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 Well, we've got to stick with it. We'll stick with issues. Does anyone know? There was more. 55. 27.5. Oh, wow. The town authorities are obliged to maintain a public pump thanks to the Enclosure Act of 1773, which decrees that Buxton people must have access to the natural spring water. But Nestle have uh, lobbied to get that all shut down. Now here's a here's a little uh, sort of joke. Um, <coughs> you were not maybe laugh too much, Joe. On the Buxton Water website, they often feature water-inspired playlists for runners. Now, what would the panel put on on their water-inspired playlists? Water. Um, so, uh, a, a water night. 
<laughs> oh, what's a nice? O spelled E A U. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can you can you can flow your own way. <laughs> Any other ideas? Springs can only get better. Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen. Something by uh, Sparks. <laughs> yeah. And as another comedian suggested to me, the whole of the moon by the Water Boys, with the lyric you saw the crescent. <laughs> and I saw the whole of the moon. So the spring water may be pale blue, but after periods of heavy rain, the river Y often turns a striking orange colour, a hue which you can envisage as a kind of ex-presidential rust. <laughs> this is due to the effect of the aeration of the water in the river, causing iron to rapidly oxidise and settle out as an orange-coloured deposit. The iron is released from the remains of coal mining workings in Burbage, which the river flows through when the river level rises sufficiently. The deposit is used in paints and is known as red ochre. Early in the 20th century, the deposits were traded with local paint manufacturers and the local name for the river is the Ochre Brook. The discoloration still spreads as far as the pavilion gardens once or twice a year and occasionally has been seen as far down the Wye as Ashford. That's the one that's 11 miles away, not the one in Kent. <laughs> So still on the theme of water and also bringing in the theme of Germany again, Buxton's twinned with a place in France that I don't know how to pronounce. It looks like Oigny. 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 And with Bad Neuheim. Bad Neuheim. Oigny. I'll tell you. Oh, okay. A goose is Oigny. It's probably like... That's a goose in French, so it's probably a goose land. Where I still the German one. Bad Neuheim in Germany is a world-famous resort noted for its salt springs which are used to treat heart and nerve diseases. And there is a type of bath, spa bath, named after it. It's a Neuheim bath. What do you think that might be? What's a Neuheim bath anyhow? Bath is bad, isn't it? I think that's it. It's a Neuheim bath. It's some sort of mineral bath. Is it an effervescent bath which has carbon dioxide? You can do it. You take your glasses. Take your glasses. No idea. Yes. Funny how you Now Germany was being overrun by American forces in 1945, but Bad Neuheim was totally spared from Allied bombing. There's a particular reason for this. Any ideas why? In 45. Yeah. Roosevelt was from there. Really? Well, not quite. <clears throat> so the president was Roosevelt, and he was said to love the town because as a boy, he'd spent several extended visits there while his father underwent the water cure for his heart condition, so he ordered it to be spared. Wow. So it's about who you know and what you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed they're that accurate, to be honest. <laughs> Which famous singer is celebrated with an annual festival in Bad Neuheim? Oh, I'm glad you asked me that. That's, that's Elvis. It is. Because uh, Elvis was stationed there during during his military uh, service, yeah. and you can go and visit his house. Uh, and I, I saw a review on TripAdvisor where it said um, it's just a house. Can't argue with that. It's a house. But but the, and the other thing I liked, uh, and this is just, um, there's an Elvis festival. But festival is an anagram 
of Fat Elvis. <laughs> you, you're working that out now, aren't you? I'll take that fat to Elvis, yes. So, the reason for the festival is that Elvis lived in Bad Neuheim while serving with the US Army in the neighbouring town of Friedberg. And the gate to the castle in Friedberg is used as a motif on a record cover for Elvis's 1959 number one hit record, A Big Hunk of Love. And that song was recorded as at Elvis's first and only session during his two years of army service. So there's a bit of a tenuous link to Buxton, but that's something you can take away with. <laughs> so a few random uh, questions and facts. Does the panel know what is odd about Water Street, which is just down the road from in Buxton? No, I saw it earlier. It's, uh, it's bad flooding. Uh, nice guess, but... Oh, the Opera House, isn't it? Yeah, it's a street with no buildings. What a strange thing. <laughs> it did once have a public toilet. So that's my uh, incidentally, Bennett Street is so called because it was laid out on land belonging to the local physician, Dr. Robert Ottiwell Gifford Bennett. The sign at the top of the road used to be misspelt with two T's, while the one at the bottom of the road was spelt correctly with only one T. However, the signs were recently changed and the disparity was rectified. Both now successfully misspelled the name with two T's. Buxton's Devonshire Royal Hospital building was built in 1790, originally as a stabling block, but in 1857 a portion was given over as a hospital. The slate dome was added in 1880. Guess the question what's special about the dome? Is it the biggest one in Europe of its type? It was the biggest in the world. In the world. When it was built, yes. It had a span of 154 feet, or 44 metres, which made it bigger than St Paul's Cathedral, and even bigger than St Peter's Basilica and the Pantheon in Rome. It's the largest unsupported dome in the world at the time. It's still the largest in the UK, and it held a world record till 1902, when the 61 metre diameter West Barden Springs Hotel was built in Indiana. I don't suppose you know this, but what holds the current world's dome record? And you'd either know this or you wouldn't, so it's... Uh, it's not a Thunderdome, is it? it it's, it's the Singapore National Stadium, and that's 310 metres in diameter, and has a retractable roof, which sounds incredibly impressive. So uh, you need to up your game, Buxton. <laughs> okay, uh, when did the Buxton Brewery first brew its beer? How far back are we going? Kind of research this so I know. <laughs> oh, I'm spoiler person. 2009. Yeah, ancient history, isn't it? It's like two decades ago now. Yeah, according to their website, the brew house was a family garage and the first batch size was about 40 litres. So, a uh, little quiz to the panel which of these beers are made by the brewery? Okay, number one, Buxton Spa. Sure, why not? Yeah. 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 Sounds like a good Yes, it is, yeah. Number two, Buxton Twin Peak. <laughs> I'm yeah. thinking no. Was the first word buxom there? Buxom. Right. Mm -hmm. Was it really? It, it, it's no, not made. I, don't I made that one up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, third one, peak oil. Peak oil. Oh, that's, that's too clever. It's too clever. So is that one there? I don't know. <laughs> I think that's all. I made, yeah. that, I made that one up. Oh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> number, number four, no peak king. 
<laughs> that sounds That's pretty stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I made that one up. <laughs> I your fingerprints on it. Uh, number five, breakfast date. Oh, breakfast date. No. Shaking your head there. No. I, th- I, th- I think it's the only one. Yeah. It is, it is. Oh, I really like a breakfast date. Yeah. And the last one. <laughs> The last one, did I make this up? Original lemon meringue ice cream sorbet. <laughs> no, that's a real one. It's a real one. <laughs> so we're coming towards the end, but we couldn't possibly have a comedy show and talk about Buxton and history without referring to one of Buxton's celebrities, Tim Buck Taylor, uh, who would have turned 81 today. So happy birthday, Tim. Perhaps the most well-known person to come out of Buxton. He, he sadly died on 12th of April last year, age 79, from complications from COVID-19. His father was a solicitor and his mother was a games teacher, an international lacrosse player, and his grandfather played centre forward for the England football team in the 1880s. His school days didn't get off to the best of starts. Can the panel guess what he did at the age of five and a half? Set fire? You might as well have done because he got himself expelled from primary school <laughs> to five and a half. Later, one of his teachers wrote a rather prescient report to his parents, saying words to the effect that Tim might get a job as an actor if he fails his A-levels, or, as he'd probably prefer, he may find work as a musical comedian. So He was briefly employed as a teacher, but went on to study at Pembroke College in Cambridge, though he joined the Cambridge University Footlights Club and became its president in 1963. Can you name some of the other famous people in the Footlights? Dame Tanks. John Cleese. David Billard. Billard, yes. Graham um, Chapman. Graham Chapman, Graham Garvin, Jonathan Lynn, all, all the leading lights uh, that we look back to now. Their review at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe was so successful that the show transferred to London's West End. Can't even imagine that sort of thing happening there. Before going on to New Zealand and then to Broadway. That's, that's how great it was. Brooke Taylor moved into BBC Radio as a co writer and performer in I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again. Again, alongside John Cleese, Velody, Graham Gordon, etc. He played the part of Lady Constance de Coverley, if I'm saying that right, with her screeching catchphrase, Did somebody call? uttered at the climax of an adventure story. He was then a writer and performer on the TV comedy series at last the 1948 show, again with John Cleese, Graham Chapman, and Marty Feldman. The show's most famous sketch was The Four Yorkshiremen, which satirised Britain's class system and North South Divide. I shall not take offence. <laughs> he also took part in David Frost's pilot programme, How to Irritate People, in 1968, designed to sell what would later be recognised as the Monty Python style of comedy to the American market. I've, I've got a lot more information, but I feel like I'm running out of time, so I'll just swiftly move on to the goodies. When do you think it was first aired? Any idea? I think it was 72. As far back as 1970, which I was, I was surprised about, yeah. It started out as a 10.30pm uh, show at night, but over time gradually changed to become a sort of family programme, made that gradual transition. And he was quoted as saying that, um, I'm a pessimist at heart, I didn't expect it to succeed or go on. I find it nerve-wracking, I imagine the voice from above saying, you were never funny. When we were the goodies, all of us made fun of OBEs and the honour system, but now I find myself an OBE. Back then we used to say they were given to people who didn't deserve them, but I suppose I've changed my view <laughs> and become very grateful that somebody thinks the things I've done haven't been too bad. Well, I think we uh, we'd all agree that he was a comedy genius. 
What made Alex Mitchell of Kingsland, Norfolk, the ultimate goodies fan? He died. He died laughing. I know this, yeah, yes, he died laughing. He died laughing. <laughs> 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 episode. Oh, yeah. um, but his wife was very gracious and, and thanked them for making the last half hour of his life. <laughs> <laughs> and then, in which 1971 film did Tim play the short, uncredited role of a computer scientist? Oh, 71? Yeah. No, it's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. His scene was actually the last one filmed for the movie. So there we go. I think, yeah, we've run out of time. So I'd just like to, I'm going to say one final on this day, but before we do that, please give it up for the guests on the panel tonight. We've had Kevin Hudson. to again thank the Greenland Gallery for hosting this show as part of the 2021 Buxton Fringe Festival. I've got one final on this day which is about the RMS Carpathian, the ship that rescued the 705 survivors from the RMS Titanic. On this day in 1918 the vessel was torpedoed three times off Ireland by the German U-boats U-55 and was itself sunk with the loss of five lives. Now I'm not sure why but this reminds me of the story of the old lady whose cat was stuck up a tree, and she called the fire brigade for help. Now, being civic-minded, and with no fires to attend to, the fireman duly showed up, put up a ladder, and rescued the cat from the tree. The old lady was overjoyed, and insisted the fireman stay for some tea and cake. Again, as there'd been no further call-outs, the fireman obliged and stayed for some refreshments. As they got back in their fire engine and started driving off, they waved goodbye to the grateful old lady, and promptly ran over the cat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the show. Thank you very much.